97% of salespeople are missing this one thing that if they only knew it would allow them to close 75% more sales. It has nothing to do with charisma, the gift of gab, or whatever else you've been told. Because if you're trying to convince your customer, that means they don't want to buy, which means you've already lost the sale. What sales professionals do is sell customers exactly what they want to buy. They work with the customer to uncover their current challenges, the consequences of those challenges, and how that's impacting them. They then help the prospect describe the ideal solution to their problems, what that looks like, and how that perfect outcome will impact them. And once they can picture that perfect outcome, price is irrelevant. That's right. Sales professionals sell customers exactly what they want to buy because it's easier dealing with a happy customer than dealing with a customer who felt sold. So here's the deal. I explain everything in my live two-day sales workshop, June 14th and 15th in my office. Go to closemoresales.com workshop and you'll be able to close more sales as soon as you get back. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we have Daniel Marcos with the Growth Institute. And Daniel flew in from Austin, Texas to talk about the journey from entrepreneur to CEO. Now, I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires, and the information on this podcast alone is enough for you to become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you will become one. Now, I am having deep conversations with business owners right now are facing a lot of uncertainty. Right now, what I'm offering, I don't do this all the time, is a dedicated one-hour diagnostic call to talk about you and your business. The call is recorded and will be emailed to you to keep afterwards. Now, we're going to discuss exactly where you are in your business today, what you want your business and personal life to look like, and what the exact challenges you're facing right now that's preventing you to getting you where you want to go. At the end, I may suggest a couple of actions or a couple of products. It might be one of my products or a partner's products. Uh, the cost of these products can range from free to a lot of money. And just being totally honest with you, if this is something you might find valuable, go to stevetrangdiagnostic.com. And this show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get over to get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors to get 10% off. And uh, we're going to be diving really deep into Daniel's world. So, you know, be patient with me. There's a lot to unpack. I'm really excited about this episode. You ready? It's ready. Thanks for All the invitation. Right. Oh, it's totally my honor. I got a chance to listen to you speak at Collective Genius. And I was totally blown away. I actually shared one of my biggest tidbits from it and, you know, kind of got viral for it. Thanks to you. Nice. So just an <laughs> FYI. Uh, so it was about how to excise cancer from your company, right? Oh, yes. Not, we have those. Everyone talks about, you know, excising cancer. And yeah. like, you know, we say, oh, just get rid of cancer, get rid of cancer without any kind of strategy behind it. Yeah. Right. So before we jump into this, you want to talk about the strategy for excising cancer? So so I always talk about this chart of nine boxes, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I always rank employees in nine boxes. So the further to the right are people that produce a lot of money, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're very productive. And the higher is the ones that are more aligned with your core values. Mm -hmm. So if you are on the top right, you're an A player, right? Love having you. Love having you, yes. Yeah. And you love them for any over reasons. Yeah. They're great producing, but they're also in core values. They come, they're, they're, they're really engaged with the company. They do whatever they have to do to be yeah. successful. What I call the the cancer or the, or the difficult rock star is the one that is on the right, but on the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's someone that if they leave your company today, you will cry because they're really productive. They do 20, 30% of your revenue. But you know that in the long term, you cannot work with them, right? Mm -hmm. um, I call them the cancer because whenever you identify cancer in someone's body, you don't remove it immediately. You do chemotherapy so you could decrease their power 
And once they're the, uh, weaker, then you remove them. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to do. Yeah. You have to identify the person, and you take probably six months to a year in debilitating the position and the person, mm-hmm. and once it's debilitated enough, and then your business will not suffer. That's when you exit them. Yeah. Um, um, it takes around six months to a year to do it right. Yeah, so that was a video I did based off your Very conversation. Cool. <laughs> yeah, a lot of <laughs> thank you, so thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. So what was your life like before you became an entrepreneur? So I grew up in Mexico. Uh, I was born in Monterey, Mexico, live in Mexico City. Um, and I was a typical happy kid, uh, did really bad in school, like most entrepreneurs. Uh, the only part that was a little bit different, I've always taken a lot of risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of accidents when I was a kid. Um, when I was one year, 11 days old, I, had, I was a baby. Mm-hmm. I burned my house down. Um, Burn your house down. down. So quick story. Uh, I don't know if you remember back then, the paint was very thick and you need to thin it with some thinner. Mm-hmm. There was this other thing. So before you paint, you had to mix them and then put the paint. There was this guy painting the garage in my parents' house. And he left for lunch and left, left a bucket of thinner open. And I was one year old. I was learning to walk. And it looked like I was crawling. And I kind of grabbed the bucket, tried to stand up. And I kind of threw it. The bucket fell on top of me went to the boiler and blew up. So um, I, my mom heard the noise of the boom, and then the lady that was supposed to be caring for me started shouting because there was fire all over, and there was me in the middle. So my mom came running from the second floor, and she looks into the garage, and I'm walking in fire in the middle. So she ran into the fire, my mom. You're right, but you're on fire? I was completely on fire, completely on fire. Um, she ran, hugged me, and then like hugged me so she could turn the fire out. Uh, ran to the street. The first car that was moving on the street stopped the car, said, take me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we got into the hospital, and the doctor, as soon as they received us, they said, okay, your son goes here. You go here. And my mom said, like, no, no, I'm going to go with my son. And I was like, no, we have to treat you. And my mom said, treat me of what? She was all burned. She didn't realize she was burned. Like, yeah. She was so worried. Um, and I lived in a hospital like six or seven months, um, had several operations, and today I'm in perfect shape. But mm-hmm. if you see my face, I'm burned here, wow. my stomach, I'm all burned, my knees. Um, at that moment, I had 83% of my body uh, with 30-degree burns. Wow. But something that you don't realize, I was so small, I was a baby, that a lot of new skin grow. Mm-hmm. And that moment was 80%. Today is probably... 15%. Oh, wow. Okay. So so I was very lucky that it was very, very early. Yeah. And I got run over by a car when I was 11, and I had all these accidents when I was a kid. Uh, talking okay. about big, uh, a lot of risk tolerance, uh-huh. I had a lot of risk tolerance. Yeah. I was bad at, in school, had a lot of risk tolerance, but I I was always had this certain charm mm-hmm. and, and have a good way to connect with people. Well, I can sense that for sure. <laughs> so... Went to so you grew up Monterey, you in Mexico grew, City. In Mexico yeah. City, you grew up. Went to college. I went to college in Monterey, uh, industrial engineer. Okay. And at that moment, when I was graduating, I started looking for a job in a factory. So industrial engineer is all about making a factory more efficient. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, the Japanese factories was the most efficient factories in the world. And everything I learned was about Japan and and mm-hmm. just in time and all these things. So I wanted to go to live in Japan to learn how to do it. 
And also because when I was applying to jobs in Mexico, the starting salary was $700 a month. And I was like, how can I get out of college of the yeah. best engineering school in the country and make $700 a month? Yeah. So I uh, started looking around how to go to Japan. And my brother was working in New York as a trader. And he said, they just changed my boss. And I was like, what happened to your boss? Well, my boss was sent to Hong Kong to be the general uh, 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 counsel in, in Hong Kong of the Mexican government, the, the ambassador of the council. So I said, hey, give me his phone number. If he's in Hong Kong, he's closer to Japan. <laughs> so I called the guy and said, hey, I'm the bro little brother of Ernesto. Can you help me get a job in Japan? And the guy said, hey, I have a job opening here in Hong Kong. Why don't you come to Hong Kong? And from here, I'll help you jump to Japan. That's awesome. And I was like, on. So mm -hmm. my first job out of college, I was a financial attache in mm -hmm. the Mexican consulate uh, in Hong Kong for two years. Okay. You know, Hong Kong was part of England mm -hmm. and went back in, to China. English, English province. I was there the day Chris Patton got into the into the boat and said goodbye and we're all... Oh. So I was there for the handover. Oh, for the handover. So, so interestingly, let me just quick story. So he had a special position that it was just a two-year job. There was a year before the handover and the year after the handover because Hong Kong, uh, all, all the big events of the world happened in Hong Kong. The World Bank meeting and all these kind of things were there, mm -hmm. and he had a lot of extra work. So he had a position for two years, and I was the one that filled that position. Now, attache, is that involved with your industrial engineering degree, or this is something Nothing completely? Nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay, I didn't so, think it did. So interesting, uh, he, was a, he was a financial guy. In Mexico, whenever you were in government at high levels, and instead of firing you or sending you home, they usually give you an embassy or a consulate. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of your process to get out of retirement. retirement. Mm -hmm. And he was sent to be the consul general in Hong Kong. Uh, he used to be the head of the Mexican Central Bank in New York. And he was a trader. I worked Super well connected. Super well connected. And I, the last three years in college, I was working in a brokerage house in the floor. I was the guy doing the trading. Mm -hmm. So I connected with him through that. And he said, you know finance. You know, industrial engineering, come and work for me for two years. Yeah. So I worked in government for my first two years. Okay. Did you go to Japan? I did not. Okay. So quick story. Back then, this was 1997, 1998, mm -hmm. the internet boom. And I was reading all these magazines of these kids making millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need to do this. So after my two years, resigned, came back to Mexico and opened my first company. What was your first company? Um, I built the first fintech in Mexico. I was the first one to put financial information online for the Mexican market. So I was the first one to put stock quotes and news and everything from the Mexican stock market online, 1998. Wow. Um, so long time ago. Yeah. So how <laughs> I was, was that 25. How was that then. business? Uh, we did great. So I started running that. I was the biggest one in the country. I was the first one. Mm -hmm. But we got pretty good traffic. We started going very fast. And one day I got a call from my competitor. I had a competitor in Argentina mm -hmm. uh, called Patagon. And they already had operations in Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. And I was the biggest one in Mexico. And he called me and said, hey, I'm raising $50 million from JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. You want to be with me or against me? <laughs> and I was like, okay, what's the price? Yeah. And the guy said, I'm, I'm sending you a plane ticket. I'll see you tomorrow morning in Argentina. Mm -hmm. So I flew over to Argentina. And he told me all the plan. He said, hey, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm raising $50 million. I want to be the biggest one in Latin America. But when I went to JP Morgan to ask for the money, they say, if you don't have Mexico and Brazil, you're nothing. Mm -hmm. If you understand Latin America, 
Mexico and Brazil are the, the 800-pound gorillas okay. compared to every other country. Uh, just to give you an idea, Mexico, the Pemex, Pemex, the Mexican oil company, just Pemex is bigger than Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela's GDP combined. Okay. So Mexico and Brazil are really big compared to the rest. Mm -hmm. So JP Morgan told this guy, hey, we love your strategy. We love what you're trying to do. But if you don't have Mexico and Brazil, you're nothing. Mm -hmm. Bring me the best operation in Mexico and Brazil, and I'll give you the money. So he called the number one trader in, in Brazil. I was the number one in Mexico. We merged. Next week, we went to uh, New York. And we said, okay, we have five countries. Now we're all together. Here's the contracts. Mm -hmm. And we raised $53 million at a valuation yeah. of $100 million at that time. Wow. We were, in all the companies, we were probably 80 employees. We were doing like $5 million revenue. We valued the company at $100 million and raised 53. Mm -hmm. And then six months later, after that, we end up selling it to Santander, uh, the 13th biggest bank in the world. Okay. Banco Santander is the biggest bank in Spain. So they're very big in Latin America. Mm -hmm. They have operations all over Latin America. And we sold the company for $753 million, uh, six months after that. So you did pretty well here, I imagine. I did decently well for that time. For that time? Yeah. Um, why would you continue working after that? Um, first, uh, we did very well in paper, and then we did not do that well in money after the bank. Okay. So he here's something that happens as entrepreneurs, and I made that mistake. <laughs> first, you get a lot of money in paper, and you think that you're worth that money. Mm -hmm. And until the money doesn't hit your bank, you're not like that. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we were like, worth a lot uh, in paper, in stock. I had a lot of stock. So you had, then, a, you had a net worth. A net worth that it was pretty big. Mm -hmm. But in cash in my bank, was not that bad. Hey, I was 25 and I was making three, four $400,000 back in 1999. That yeah. In today's world, is like a million, right? Mm -hmm. At my 25. So I was, in cash flow, I was good. But in stock, I had several million. Mm -hmm. And then the company had a lot of trouble. We hired IBM to build us a software, uh, $28 million. It didn't work. It took us two years to build the software and $28 million in cash, and it didn't work. So $28 million. $28. Invested. Invested in two years. In two years. Oh, plus like 100 team members from our team, <laughs> plus 28 that we pay IBM. It didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? It didn't work. We, we, so they said, okay, it's ready. It didn't turn out. Okay, let me change this. It didn't turn, and it we were two months every day. Never worked. Wow, it never worked, and that started the demise of the company. And then we went under. Well, yeah, that's twenty million dollars <laughs> a lot of money to invest to go nowhere. Twenty eight, uh, indeed. Uh, after I left, uh, the guy that kept the the, the shell of the company uh, sued IBM and won forty one. Okay, so. The person that kept the, the shell company ended up mm -hmm. making some money at the end. So he did okay. He did okay. He did. Very what well. did you do with uh, after that? I mean, because it's kind so, of dispiriting. It's a little yes. discouraging. So I I I was really tired. Uh, I worked probably eighteen hours a day for three years. It was it was tough. Mm -hmm. I opened the first online banking license in the country. Uh, we opened like five more countries, and then we acquired banks in Spain and Germany, and we we bought two telephone banks and convert them to online banks. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a lot of work, and by the time I left, um, I had a, a, a bad conversation with a, a top executive at Santander. And I hey, said, what? Santander acquired us, okay. and I had a really bad conversation with one of the main guys at mm -hmm. Santander. And I said, it's time for me to leave, in the middle of the conversation. And the guy said, okay, 
I expect your resignation letter in an hour. Mm -hmm. And that was it. So I left. In the night. I went home and I was, I'm gone. And my wife was like, what do you mean you're gone? And I was like, I told the guy that I was suffering my resignation. The guy said, taken. So What led to that? I had to hire a CEO. So let me go a little bit back. In Mexico, there's probably 15 banks in the whole country. In the U.S., there's like 100 banks just mm. in Texas, right? <laughs> Mexico is very different. You have national banks. So I went to the government and asked for a banking license. And it took me two years of work and around two and a half million dollars of lawyers. And one day I got a call and said, hey, you pass everything you need to pass. We have just one problem. And I was like, what's the problem? He said, you're 28 years old. We cannot give a banking license to a 28-year-old kid that has never worked in the bank. And I was like, okay, that sounds coherent. <laughs> so they told me, go and raise or bring a, a banker and we'll give you a license. Mm -hmm. So I went to Corn Ferry and said, I need a banker. So Corn Ferry took around a week, gave me like 20 resumes and said, these are the 20 people that we believe we could get you. Mm -hmm. I sent them to the banking commission and said, these 20, who will you approve? And they approved three. <laughs> That's okay, great. So that's a smart way to do it. Yeah, you didn't say I have I have this guy. It was work. It's like which <laughs> one is good enough for that's you? Correct. <laughs> okay. I sent them the resumes, and they approved three out of the twenty. Okay. And then I went and pursued them and got one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and then he started working for us, and now he was the CEO of Mexico because we needed that for the bank license. Um, and he and I start kind of going our own way, different ways. Mm -hmm. And one day I said what you're doing, I don't like it. And the guy said, I don't care if you want to arrest nation now. And I was like, I'm out. So you placed the CEO. Yeah. And, and then, then got you, fired. and then you submitted your resignation to him. Yeah. Some months after, but yes. What was the conversation though? I mean, there should have been some loyalty it, it, there. It, some it sort. was a strategy of where we should go with the business. Got it. Um, so just different visions. Just different visions. Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to do something completely different that mm -hmm. he wanted. And he said, but I'm the CEO. And I was like, yeah, but you don't know what you're saying. Like, I've been, I built this business. And he said, I'm going to do it my way because I'm the CEO. And I was like, I don't want to be here. Yeah. But it was time for me to leave. So uh, somewhere along the way, yep. you created, you did some mortgages. After that. Yeah. So, so I, I, I do that. I took two years off. Mm -hmm. um, I did like 16 months around the world trip. So I had that, some, that doesn't sound so bad. I had some money in the bank. Mm-hmm. I was just married for a year, no kids. Yeah. So I went back home that night. 16-month honeymoon. Yeah. I told my wife, hey, we have some money, no kids. Do you mind that we travel? And she was like, well, the house and, you know, all these things. And I said, let's put the house for rent. Mm -hmm. And if we rent it, we'll go. We put it for rent like in a week. The day we put it for rent, we got an executive from Switzerland working for, for uh, Nestle. Mm -hmm. And they rented a house in cash for like $5,000. And I was like... We're out. So we just went around the world. We bought a round the world ticket with United, you know, mm -hmm. Star Alliance, and did like a 16-month trip around the world. That's incredible. It was awesome. So then at some point you come back. So I did my MBA in Babson. So I, after that, went to do an MBA in Babson in Boston, and then moved to Austin and opened a mortgage bank. Okay. At that moment, there were two very, very important trends in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The first one was the Hispanic market. I don't know if you remember the census of 2000 in the US. That's the first time the market realized how big the Hispanic market was. Got it. It was mostly illegal uh, or undocumented mm -hmm. uh, people in the US and they have never understood their purchasing power. Mm -hmm. In the sense of 2000 was like a, a super awakening. And then 2004, it was the big 
push for home ownership. Yeah. Uh, Henry Cisneros was the CEO, was the uh, Secretary of HUD, and he had a mandate to increase home ownership in the U.S. like by five points, especially with minorities. Mm -hmm. And that's what created the subprime disaster that we had. So was it you saw the environment and then you created the mortgage? So when I was in Babson, I, I was designing my next business and I started le learning a lot about trends. And for me, the two trends that were most aligned with me was finance, mm -hmm. mortgages, housing, and Hispanics. I said, if i Hispanic, I know how to do that. <laughs> so I moved to Austin, opened a mortgage bank to finance undocumented Hispanics. That was so it. I love that you said, design my next business. Yes. It has to be by design. Because we kind of fall into it, like, you know, um, my first um, experience in, self in entrepreneurship, right, self-employment, I bought the rental properties, whatever. And my first time working for myself was a realtor. Yep. And uh, it's been a good experience. But what I learned about the realtor industry, and you probably learned this as well because you're in mortgages or were in mortgages, is that most realtors fall into that yes. world. No one's like, I'm going to go and become a realtor. It's like, well, that I looks interesting. I don't have any other thing. I'll <laughs> yeah. be a realtor. Yeah, you fall back so, into it. So let me tell you a quick story because it goes exactly to that. 2007, uh, the market changed dramatically. Yeah, that's when I got licensed, by the way. You got licensed 2007? Yeah. Oh, I got out 2007. <laughs> um, so I had raised money and everything. And I called my investors and said, hey, the market for subprime and Hispanics has completely dried. Oh, yeah. We have two options. Or we convert to the English market and we go prime with the mm -hmm. English market or we shut down the business. And they said, I think we need to have a meeting so we could get the data. So mm -hmm. I drove to Dallas. Most of my investors were in Dallas. We met in Dallas, and we, I showed them all the trends and everything that I was seeing. And at the end, one of the investors asked me, and what would you do? Like, you personally. Like, mm -hmm. what do you prefer? And I said, I would shut down the business. And the guy said, why would you shut it down? And I said, because I hate working here. And the guy's like, what do you mean you hate working here? Like, <laughs> it's you, your company. It's your company. You invite us to invest. <laughs> and I said, I didn't realize that I was coming from an industry with the highest, not quality, but determination people, internet uh, back in the 2000s, mm -hmm. the people that were more tolerant to risk and better educated, jumping through into mm -hmm. internet. And I said, here, I'm the people with have the lowest standards in the world. And it's horrible. Like, like it's, it's depressing to go to work every day because a lot of people default into real estate. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, they even look at each other and said like, okay, shut it down. <laughs> And I was like, thank you. <laughs> but but that's uh, that was it. Yeah. I, I was it was it was a very uncomfortable industry mm -hmm. because of that. I, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but uh, it is reality. Hey. A lot of people default into real mm -hmm. estate, yeah. mortgages, insurance, all the things that are around real estate. Yeah. So what was the so you started you say you started in 2004, 2004, and I shut it down 2007. So what was that experience like? You know, because you saw you saw this trend. Well, I guess before we get into that, I mean, you talk about you discover the trend. Like, what are you doing to discover the trends? Like, so I I read a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, when I said I read a lot, I've read probably twelve hundred business books. Yeah, uh, and I read a lot news. Uh, I, I'm I'm a, a junkie of knowledge. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I like a lot is trends. Mm -hmm. As an example, today, what's the biggest trend that I'm seeing? China and, and the U.S. fighting, mm -hmm. we're going to 
geopolitically restructure the world completely in yeah. the next five years. And people are not seeing it. Mm -hmm. I talk with real estate investors in the US. And they say, well, the market is not that bad. And it's going to have some. And I was like, no, you don't get it. Like, I really believe 2023 or whatever recession is not going to start in the US. It's going to start in Europe or China. And we're going to get hit mm -hmm. in the US. Well, I mean, we're kind of seeing it already with China. We haven't felt it. Yeah. We haven't felt it. But it's happening. It's happening. They're, they're, they're massively overbuilt. And what they're doing in China, what they've been doing in China is not that different than what we did in 2006 and 2007. That's correct. But no one's really talking about that. But, but here's the difference. In the U.S., probably we have 10 or 15% of our assets in real estate. Mm -hmm. In China, it's like 40% of really? the assets of the families. Yeah. So it's going to get bad. And that's not the only issue that is happening in China. I don't know if you saw uh, Mary Garland, the, uh, what's the head of the security in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, the uh, Department of Justice. The Department of Justice. Yeah. He gave a press release last Monday. Lasted like 25 minutes. They have captured around 20 Chinese nationals mm -hmm. directed by the Chinese Communist mm -hmm. Party to steal uh, information in the U.S. and technology. Yeah. And they got them a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. That's going to be bad. Yeah. So, so Biden, two weeks before that, sent a, a information to... Americans working for 21 companies that serve Chinese companies or were Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. And the message in few words said, you have two options. Or you resign or you lose your American citizenship. Yeah. It's going to get bad. Yeah, I read that too. And there's not a lot of it's not, conversation about that. I don't understand. Like, it's a tectonic shift in the world. Yeah. No well, it's not just that. The other thing I read was that um, they're no longer um, – they – they created um, a collusion, right, of, of all the countries that we are no longer going to supply in, um, technological information to China. Uh, that is true. Right? Yep. And that's the reason why this China-Taiwan yep. thing just keeps getting more and more tense. So, so here's what the U.S. said. If I want to strangle China, mm -hmm. how can I do it? You could do it financially. But they said China does not produce any chips. Mm -hmm. They don't have the technology and the knowledge to do it. Right. They're all producing Taiwan or the U.S. Mm -hmm. They said if we could remove or strangle the access to chips, mm -hmm. they're going to go under. Yeah, that's what they're doing. Right. So it's 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 a way to choke China. Mm -hmm. um, everyone said China was going to overtake the U.S. China GDP could lose twenty thirty percent of GDP in the next five years. Yeah, and no one is talking about it as you said. No, like, I'm, I'm 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 seeing articles here and there about but it. CNN should have it. Front and center as the number one news. Yeah. No one's talking about it. So yeah. I love to read these kind of things, mm -hmm. like trends geopolitically and all that. I love that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's part of my... So it's a lot of topic here, but where do you see this going then in the next few years? So I think we're going to go from a globalized world to a regionalized world. Um, so we're going backwards as far as globalization. Backwards. Yeah. So we, we've been going towards globalization since the end of... Second World War to now, like mm -hmm. around 80 years. And by the way, if you see Ray Dalio and all these guys, they talk about these economic cycles of around 80 years. Mm -hmm. So we're at the end of this economic cycle. Um, I think we're going to go back to regionalism. And the countries that did the best in globalism are the countries that export. The countries that are going to do the best in regionalized or nationalized trends are the ones that have an internal market. 
the U.S. has by far the biggest internal market. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me walk you through GDP. U.S., let me, let me just put this in context. The GDP of the world in the 2000, when we crossed the, the 2000 year, we were on $20 trillion a year. Mm-hmm. Today, we're $90 trillion a year. So we've grown the world four and a half times in 22 years mm-hmm. in GDP. The U.S. today, it's around $21 trillion of economy. The next country is China, 17. So China, if it continued in the trends that it was, it was going to overcome the U.S. I don't think it's going to happen. The next one is Japan with five. Like, it's, it's a third of China. Mm-hmm. And Japan is has so much, so many older people that it's... It's, it's a collapsing economy. It, yeah, and it's going to get smaller. Yeah. Then after that, you have like Germany with like 3.8. Mm-hmm. And then you have whatever, and England. And then you have India with 2.6. India is doing amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's 2.6 against 21. Right. Like, there's no way that it's going to get close to the U.S. in the next 20 or 30 years. So there's no one that could overtake the U.S. Yeah. I think the U.S. is going to come back way stronger. Uh, than in the past. I hope you're right. Uh, I'm not. I'm not as as optimistic. I so I am worried socially of what's happening in the U.S., mm-hmm. but economically, no one could touch the U.S. Yeah. So we will see. <laughs> so um, you know, you talk about your, you know, you, you uh, born and raised in Mexico, right? Like we come from China, right? So I'm Chinese. We're talking yeah. about you know China. Like um, my grandparents, right, yeah. had the pleasure of losing everything due to, due to socialism slash communism, right? And they <laughs> fled to Vietnam. To blossom as entrepreneurs, as uh, as, uh, as merchants, yep. to do well again, yep. to lose everything again <laughs> due to socialism slash communism, yep. right? People say, "Oh, but it's different." Right? No, like you can't have socialism without communism, <laughs> no. right? It, it goes hand in hand, and so I am fearful for everything I see uh, today. So, so, go ahead. I, I agree. I am really worried socially, but social divide. Uh, Ray Dalio has a saying that I really like. He said. The hegemonies or the leading countries of the world, they don't die because they get attacked by someone else. They mm-hmm. die from internal. Yeah, it's always from within. So, it, yes, it can happen. I have a lot of trust in the U.S. that the U.S. is able to reinvent itself mm-hmm. and the, the system and institutions work. Yeah. So for me, one of the biggest proof that the U.S. is going to be able to turn around, the day of January 6th, there was an attack of the Capitol, mm-hmm. The senators have to flee because they thought they were going to be killed. Mm-hmm. They came back at 2 a.m. to certify the elections. Yeah. I was blown away. That's when you know the institutions work. Yeah. So I hope I that, hope you're right. Will hurt. I hope that I will work. <laughs> so who who guided you, right? Because you went to, I mean, you had a lot of people help you kind of get you to where you are. Yes. Who were the people that helped you along the way in in, in getting from, you know, growing up in uh in Mexico all the way to where you are right now because you're you're leading a lot of people. Yes. Right? How did you, who helped you along the way? I've always had mentors. Um, and going back a little bit of the charisma that I said when I was a kid, um, I've always had people that come to me and said, hey, I like what you're doing. I like your capabilities. Mm-hmm. Can I help you? Uh, and I've, I've, I've asked several of them, but several have uh, come to me. Uh, first, my parents. It's crazy how good of parents they are. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, when I got in trouble, and I tell this story often, when when I closed the mortgage business, I got into a depression. Uh, I, I really felt really bad with myself. And and I had some economic challenges and all that. And my parents sent me a letter. 
and the letter said, "In life gives you very little, very few moments to learn really fast, and life is giving you one moment today. Mm -hmm. And because you have so much pain, you're not willing to learn. Yeah. I think we need to put things on the table and learn." So I called my parents and said, I'm open. What do you want to do? Why don't we hire this guy, moderator, to moderate a conversation? And let's have a conversation. And we got into a room like this, four white walls. My father, my mom, my wife, the trainer, and myself. And we spent three days. And we went through everything in my life, how it takes risk about things. It was, it, was, it was rough. But it helped a lot to clarify a lot of things in my life. So first, my parents. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Indeed, quick story. One day, I was going to give a presentation in Monterey. Monterey is my hometown. And while people were sitting down, I was kind of walking in the front. And this older guy in his 60s or 70s, he said, hey, who are you? Like, you know, in Monterey, it's a very small city. Okay. Uh, they, everyone knows each other. And I was like, who are you? Who are you, son of? And I was like, Ernesto. And he was like, son of Ernesto? Wow. Uh, and where do you live? I was like, I live in Austin, Texas. And he said, well, the, the daughter of a friend lives in Austin, Texas. And I was like, oh, I'm, we're very few Mexicans living in Austin. Mm -hmm. Who is it? And he gives a name. And I was like, yeah, he's my father-in-law. I'm married with, with his daughter. The guy, like, stand up, like, really fast. I was like, you're the son of Ernesto and son-in-law of Pedro? And I was like, yeah, I need to hug you. This <laughs> chat's going to be amazing. And I was like, why are you saying that? He said, those are two of the people that I admire the most. Oh. And you're the son of one and father-in-law of the other one. Yeah. Like, you're amazing. Can I give you a hug? <laughs> like, that's how much my father and my father-in-law have helped. Wow. Um, both of them have, had an amazing career, great name, and they help a lot. Um, but as an example, when I had the, the, the real estate, sorry, the internet company, I was raising money. Part of the money we raised with JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. And one investor said, I'm not going to invest. And he said, you're going to have these three or four problems. And when I left the meeting, I said, this guy's an old guy, has no idea. Mm -hmm. And then six months into it, one of the things that he said it was going to happen, happened. Mm -hmm. And then like two or three months later, the second one, I was like, you know something. Mm -hmm. So I called the guy like eight months after and said, can you coach me? And the guy said, I don't know if you remember, I hated your business. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's why I want you to coach me. Yeah. Because you told me these four things were going to happen to already happen. Mm -hmm. So I need you to be ready for the other two. And the guy said, come in, I'll coach you. And he was a billionaire in Mexico. Yeah. And I used to go to him every often. Wow. And every time I get in trouble, I continue to call him. Uh, yeah. And, and I, he knows when I get a call, when he gets a call from me, that I'm, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And he gets on the phone and he has flew me to see him. Uh, I've flown to his vacation, said, you really need to talk. I'm having vacation in Aspen or whatever. Come here, let's have a talk. Yeah. Um, so I go with him every very often when I have a, some trouble. That's incredible. So I've had a lot of mentors in my life. So in going back to being locked into a room with your parents and your wife for three days, yeah. what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself? <sighs> so the risk-taking. Mm -hmm. um, when you're alone and you're a kid and whatever, risk-taking, it's fine. You're the only one that, that, that gets into trouble. Mm-hmm. When you're married and you have kids, it's it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Um, and my risks when I was young or when I was starting were very small risks that if I lose money, it was nothing, mm -hmm. right? Now I started to play bigger games. And the bigger games begin having bigger problems or mm -hmm. bigger size checks. Um, 
and I learned a lot about how I felt very invincible uh, uh, and I, how, how I need to change. Yeah. And I need to understand that my situation was different. Um, indeed, I, there's one of Jeff Bezos' letters that I really like. Um, like five years ago, in one of the letters he sends investors, he said, I hope you're very happy because we've done a lot of bets, billion-dollar bets, and gone great. I hope you understand that the more billion-dollar bets we get great, we're going to have billion-dollar bets that are going to go wrong mm -hmm. in the future. Hope you understand. Yeah. And it's reality, but they have built such an amazing company mm -hmm. that if you have several mistakes of one or $2 billion, doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have the amount of money that they have. Yeah. That changed a lot. So before we started this uh, recording, you and I were talking, and I shared with you that I have the highest risk tolerance of anyone I know. You said that, yes. And you said that's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. So In, in your industry and with the people in CG, that's yeah. a bold statement. So how would you counsel someone like myself? Because I've learned to finally slow down. It took yeah. a lot, right? It was really you know, a lot of growth in the last six to 12 months to finally learn how to slow down. Yeah. But what counsel would you give to someone like myself with, with insane tolerance? Right. So um, you need to understand your... Um, your freedom point. Mm -hmm. like what's the amount of money you need to do, maintain your life the rest of your life and mm -hmm. understand kind of that number. And it's going to be much smaller what you think. When I talk to entrepreneurs, say, ah, I want to do 50 million and 30 million, whatever. And I help them run their numbers of the freedom mm -hmm. point. It's never 30 million. It's never 30 million. Usually your freedom point is between five and 10 mm -hmm. and you could live very comfortable the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So when I run their numbers, they kind of get it. So once you cross that, you go from risk off to risk on. Um, I've learned how to keep some of that aside mm -hmm. and I don't touch it and I don't do anything. I'll give you an example. When my mortgage business got in trouble, I got personally financially in trouble because I used to use my wallet as the wallet of the business and I was completely no boundaries. Yeah. So when I was gonna start Growth Easy to my second business, my wife said, hey, remember what we talk, what they're going to do. And I always tell businesses, you need to have six months of cash in the bank in your business. So whenever there's a recession or something, you could weather that. Mm -hmm. And my wife said, why don't we do the same? Perfect. So before I start my next business, I put at least six months in the bank account. Today, I have more than three years in that bank account. Mm -hmm. I could not touch that money for any reason. I cannot pay payroll. I don't care. That's money reserved for the family, and I could not touch it. And my risk tolerance and investment of that money, it's completely different. Yeah. So I have a nest egg of like retirement money, and then I have another account that I don't touch. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to be very disciplined with those kind of things Yeah. before I didn't do that. So what I coach entrepreneurs said, great, you want to take a lot of risk? Let's put some money aside that you cannot touch. Mm -hmm. let's, make, let's understand what will that be? And it's untouchable no matter what. Yeah. Indeed, in that account, I don't have access to that account. My wife has access to that account. I could put money every month. She's the only one who could get money out of the account. Yeah. And it's part of the rules that we have. And by the way, have growth is be in trouble a couple of times in 10 years. When he gets in trouble, I go with it. I get home with all the stress and whatever. There's always food on the table. My wife is happy. My kids are okay. Life is good. Yeah. So I've learned how to divide a little bit. And the peace of mind from your wife yes. goes a really long way. Oh, happy wife. 
makes yeah. <laughs> things much better. Well, because I know, like, for me, again, like, being married to a person like myself oh, yeah. and will always taking big bets and, you know, uh, personally guaranteed expenses, yes. right? Because yes. some when you're starting, you have to oh, sign yes. personal guarantees. Oh, yes. So it doesn't matter if you're making money or not. You're still on the hook for this business for the next three-plus years. So as an example, some, some years ago, I had to get like around a million dollars of debt for mm -hmm. my business. And before I went to do that, I got a, an insurance, a life insurance of mm -hmm. me for over a million. And he had a contract of, with the CFO of the company that if I am not here because I have a personal guarantee, the money will go to pay that mm -hmm. and just that. Yeah. And my wife said, hey, while you're here, you, you know how to make money. Mm -hmm. So if we get in trouble, you're going to get us out. But if you're not here, like I'm going to be responsible for that. Right. So I was getting insurance. I never get that without an insurance, mm -hmm. life insurance that will cover that yeah. on top of, as an example. But then I have some trust, and the money's in the trust that it's untouchable, and that's for the family. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, for anyone else that's crazy, like me, <laughs> and formerly you, formerly. lots of good wisdom there. So what are some of your biggest victories in your career? Biggest victories? Um, so I've been an entrepreneur and CEO of my companies for 24 years. Mm -hmm. I've never missed payroll, ever, in 24 years. I think that's one of my biggest victories. Yeah. Um, if there's something that will guarantee your company is going to go under and it's going to give you a lot of stress, miss payroll one day. Yeah. Uh, so I've never missed payroll. Um, second, I've had my great successes and some big failures. Uh, I've always learned never commit the same mistake twice. Um, and usually my next business, it's way better structured and designed than the previous one. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of feel good about that. Yeah. If, if, if you have a problem or a mistake and you don't learn from it, that's bad, right? Right. If you continue to be better and better and better. And I've been having fun, so. Yeah, there's a lot, of fun, in the, a lot of fun in the journey. That's correct. Uh, and, then, and then the impact of helping a lot of other CEOs get better decisions. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's been a great, you, you, you do that, you know, what is, start coaching a company with all this trouble mm -hmm. and in a year they're completely different. More fulfilling it's, than the money could ever be. Oh, oh, 10 times more. Yeah. Uh, so you were multiple times on the Inc. 5000 list. Yes. What does that mean? So uh, in the US, there's 32 million businesses in the IRS. Um, Inc. Magazine has a, a, uh, a list of the fastest growing company, private companies in the US. And they rank the 5,000 fastest growing companies. Uh, we've been that list four years in a row. So that means out of the 32 million, we're in the 5,000 that has the fastest growth. So for me, and I, I say that as um, the most competitive market in the world, 32 million companies, that you're on the top 5,000, pretty decent. Yeah. That, that proves that you're a decent CEO or entrepreneur. Yeah, well, you're definitely um, doing something right. Indeed, by the way, uh, a little bit of a brag, but last week there was a list in Mexico of the best 100 CEOs in the country, mm -hmm. and I was ranked in the in the list. So he was the head of Bimbo and the head of Pepsi Mexico and the head of DHL Mexico, mm -hmm. and Daniel was there. So That's awesome. Congratulations. It, it, it feels pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so Growth Institute. Yes. This is your company. That's my company, yep. So talk to me about Growth Institute. So I, uh, I started as a scaling up coach with Vern Harnish uh, 14 years ago. Another and great book. 
yeah, scaling up and mm -hmm. Rockefeller Habits. Uh, Vern was my mentor in my first company. Okay. And then I became one of his coaches. Uh, pretty fortuitous to have Vern be your coach, oh, your yes. mentor. Yeah. Indeed, he's here in Phoenix. He's at uh, Genius. Okay. He's going to Kindle tomorrow. Cool. Um, so Vern coached me on the first one, and I attended his program called Burning of Giants in MIT. Brilliant. Best business education I've ever had. And um, I started coaching with his methodology for four years. And my fourth year, it was extremely profitable year. I was doing close to a million in coaching. But I slept away from my home 250 nights that year. Mm -hmm. So my wife said, hey, we just had our second son. You have to choose if you want to be a dad or you want to be a consultant as you are. Mm -hmm. And I said, you're right. So I went to Vern and resigned. And Vern said, what are you going to do? And I was like, I want to go back online. I love my first experience online. I want to go back. But I'm hooked in education. I'm hooked in coaching. So I'm going to bring that online. And he said, why don't we build the institute that you and I wish that we had when we started our business? Mm -hmm. And I said, I mean, but I could just do it in Latin America because that's my center of influence at that moment. And Vern said, yeah, but I'm, I have influence all over the world. So you will run it. I'll bring all the thought leaders and strategy and everything. And you'll run it. Let's do it together. So we partner, build a company together. Uh, we've been 10 years in operation. And, and that's what we built. We built the institute or the learning space that we wish we had. So here's the premise. There are several premises. The first one is, as entrepreneurs or CEOs, we learn a lot. I'm a member of EO 24 years ago. I'm a member of YPO five years. I'm in Genius Network. We, we invest a lot in our learning. Mm -hmm. But then everything we learn, we have to go back to the office and reteach it to our team. Yes. And then we have to lead the implementations in our mm -hmm. company. And every entrepreneur hates that. Oh, yeah. You wish you said, hey, read the book on implement, right? Mm -hmm. So we said, how can we build a place that the CEOs with their team could learn together and then the team will implement without the CEO or with much less hand-holding of the CEO? Mm -hmm. And that's what we built. As an example, we teach scaling up. We have a three-month class mm -hmm. that you have to take by mandate with two other team members. And we teach you all the principles of scaling up. You have videos with Vern, coaching calls, masterminds, everything. And at the end, you have all the knowledge that you need to implement. But most importantly, you went through a class with two other team members. You're all perfectly aligned. You know what you have to do. And then your team implements for you. Yeah. And that's what we have. And we started with scaling up. And today we have over 100 thought leaders. Uh, Salim Ishmael, the first director of Singularity University. Uh, Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, the coach, we have a class with him. Peter Damandis, Tom Peters. Uh, we have amazing, amazing faculty. Joe Polish, we have yeah. a class with Joe. Um, so we we are focused on helping mid-market companies do two things. Scale your impact, do what mm -hmm. you do in a bigger way, and reduce your drama. So I talked with entrepreneurs, and everyone said, oh, I want to make more money, or I want to serve more clients, or I want to hire more team members. As entrepreneurs, we want to do what we do in a bigger way. Mm -hmm. But they always complain about the drama that it creates for being an entrepreneur. Can you elaborate on what drama is? So drama is um, rotation of employees, things that you do that didn't work and you lost money. Uh, overwork, you take work home, you have to work on the weekends, mm -hmm. all the problems and, and misalignment that you have with your team members, all of that. Right. We help make companies more efficient. So as an example, people said, hey, Daniel, I have this boat and I'm going to buy a really big engine because I want to move it really fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not very aerodynamic. 
has a lot of holes. It's full of water. You could move it, but it will take you a lot of energy, mm-hmm. and it's going to throw a lot of water out, and that's all the drama that you create. Yeah. Let's first make the boat way more efficient. Let's make it more aerodynamic. Let's cover all the holes, paint it nicely, remove all the water, and now you could push it with very little energy. Mm-hmm. You're going to move it really fast. Yeah. That's what we do at the growth East. We're like very, it. very good in making your boat way more efficient. I love that. And then I remember when you were presenting a CG, you were talking about growth of companies yes. by stages. That's correct. What are those stages? So as an example, and I get this all the time, people say, hey, I've heard scaling up is amazing. I want to implement scaling up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let me ask you some questions to make sure it's the right moment for you and, and it's what you need. No, no, no. They told me it's an amazing book I have to implement. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's like going to a doctor and said, I've heard penicillin is an amazing medicine. <laughs> Give me penicillin, right? <laughs> like, you have to know if you're sick and what are you sick and if you're the right moment and what's your weight and your age to give you the right medicine. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens. As an entrepreneur and as a coach, I've been coaching companies for 15 years. I've been an entrepreneur for 24. I know when's the right stage and when's the right moment and what's the right problem. Usually entrepreneurs, they don't. Mm-hmm. They just hear a recommendation. They just hear a book or something, and they immediately want to implement. All in. All in. That's a big mistake. Yeah. Um, indeed, you could choke companies if you implement something that is not the right mm-hmm. moment. could be too big or whatever. Like SAP as an example. I see a lot of companies that I need to implement SAP or uh, uh, whatever system. The company is not ready. There has to be a stage. Yeah. So what I did is I said, okay, great. Let me go and study how companies grow on stages. And then what's the right food and attention for each stage? You could have an amazing baby and you want to give him a Kobe uh, steak, $300. They cannot even eat it. They don't have teeth, <laughs> right? So I said, okay, let's divide companies in babies, adolescents, adults, and then understand what's the right attention, right methodology and everything. So I really believe there's four stages. Start up, grow up, scale up, and then you dominate your industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, stage one and two are pre-scaling stages. You're building the foundation of your business. And if you build the right foundations, then you go into stage three that is scaling. And then if you do scaling right, then you get to market domination or you own your market. So we understand the four stages and how the entrepreneur has to evolve from entrepreneur to be a CEO. And you're saying you can't go from startup to scaling up. If you, you jump, scale, you can't skip you growing. Can't. So, so let me give you an example. Stage one, the most important thing is product market fit. Mm-hmm. You need to have a product that makes sense, that, that clients are willing to buy. Not, Today, not, not the idea that I think is wonderful. <laughs> correct. But in, in the last five years, it was very easy to convince an investor to give you money. Yeah. So we saw a lot of entrepreneurs being very undisciplined mm-hmm. because it was very easy to convince one investor to give you money instead of convincing a thousand clients mm-hmm. to buy their product. So we said, stage one, don't raise money, do what you have to do, and figure out product market fit. And we have tools and everything to help you prove product market fit. Stage two is all about building a replicable revenue model. In stage two, you have fixed expenses and very unstable revenue, Mm -hmm. and that kills companies. And they want to scale, and they want to put good money into bad funnels and systems. Mm -hmm. No, you have to figure out your, your revenue model, your predictable revenue model before you go to the next level. If you get those two, then it's the right time to scale. Mm-hmm. And scale is all about execution. You have to be very, very disciplined in execution. You and I were talking about Jim Collins uh, mm-hmm. earlier. 
Jim Collins, if you see his flywheel, discipline, thought, discipline, strategy, discipline, people, discipline, execution. And that's what gives you the curve. Same here. If you have a product market fit, you know how to sell it, how you could scale it. Yeah. That's kind of our formula. And then when you scale it, it's all about being focused on doing one thing well and just doing one thing. More companies die of indigestion, trying to do too many things. So our job on stage three, keep them focused, discipline the execution. If they're able to do that, then they will dominate their industry. There's a couple of things that are important. First one, in stage two, you have to decide if you want to have a scale-up or a lifestyle business. And I believe the best size of a company for balance of quality on life and money, 10 to 15 employees. I have a lot of clients, they do 10 to 15 employees. They do probably three, four million. The owner nets a million, million half. Mm -hmm. You're happy as hell. Oh, if I'm doing a million now, if I get to 50, I'm going to do 5 million. No, <laughs> you're going to make less than what you're doing today. Yeah. So there's a value of death between 20 to 70 employees. And we help companies go through that. But before they jump into value of death, I help them understand what's going to happen in the value of death. You need to have certain money and tools to be able to go through that disciplinedly. And then the second big decision, once you get out of the 78 employees, now you kind of got out of the uh, value of death. I call it sell or not to sell. Once you get out of that, the company has much less risk and you're going to get a lot of offers to buy your business. Mm -hmm. Usually, your business is worth at least $10 million once you cross that. All the private equity funds in the U.S. will buy you. Mm -hmm. Today, for Growth Institute, I get probably two or three a month. Hey, you build a great company. It's time to get some money off the table, and they start to lure you. Mm -hmm. And it kind of moves you, but most important, your family. You know how many times I've had discussion with my wife saying, hey, you already built it. You work 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week. It's time to sell it. Mm -hmm. Let's retire. Let's have better time. Your kids are growing up. They have three or four more years to go to it's college. The sirens. That's great. So it's a really, really, really tough decision for the mm -hmm. founders to decide what to do. So we help a lot on, on go through that transition correctly. Because as I said, once you cross your freedom point, you go from risk off because you're building it, mm -hmm. to risk on. And it's very, very important that you understand where you're going. And if you could take some chips off the table and, and have some stability, buy some houses, get some apartment complexes or something, yeah. and be more stable in revenue, it, we help them kind of go through those decisions correctly. Yeah. So it's very important that you understand the stages, your evolution, and what's the right moment to do what at your company. If you do that, the probability of you scaling is much higher but most importantly, the drama. You will enjoy the ride of scaling a company. I yeah. imagine you've seen a lot of people that they, they're not enjoying running their company. Well, it's interesting because I started on the realtor side and then I transitioned to the wholesaler side. And the one consistent theme I've always said, because people are like, Steve, I want to scale, I want to scale. To which I typically reply with, I've, I've been there. <laughs> I've done the scaling. It's not as sexy not as you think it is. Revenue goes up, but take-home goes down. Yeah. So you're working harder for less money, yeah. right? But they want to do it. And my question always to them, like, there has to be a purpose. Because the question I always ask them, name one person you know yeah. that has six salespeople or more and is loving life. Very few. 
Very six few. sales agents. That's, so. that's the number I would pick, right? Because six, <laughs> you got to spend a good amount of money on marketing to feed all oh, yes. of them. Oh, yes. To make enough money to deal with the transaction volume, to deal with the TC, to deal with the administrative people that hate the salespeople because salespeople are typically sloppy with their paperwork. Their oh, notes yeah. are awful. So you got all these things you got to deal with. You talked about the drama earlier. That's, that's exactly right. I've dealt with all of this. That's exactly right. And so I always ask them, like, name one person that you know that has six salespeople or more in his loving life. They exist. You know, yeah. you work with Frank Cava, Eric Brewer. Eric Brewer. They have right? them. They've got it. But they are seasoned investors. Like, right. Like, I, I'd say that they have these, um, how do you call it? The teeth. The fangs. The, the fangs. Yeah. They walk, they have so big things. Oh, the canines, yeah. They're, they're, they're making holes in the ground, right? Yeah. Like, these guys are seasoned. They know what they're well, doing. Well, they survived the last recession. Yeah. Right? And so, the scaling thing is always amusing to me because, like, the, the buzzword for the last two years, I think, was, like, I want to scale, I want to scale, I want to scale. Not today. And I've done the scaling thing. And, you know, I had over 100 agents in my brokerage. It was not How much fun. drama do you have? <laughs> Some with the realtors predominantly it was with like department of real estate or the board of ethics or, you know, wage garnishment notices. Right. Like you get all these things when you have a lot, when you have a large organization. Oh yeah. No one really talks about that. I hear you. Right. But the revenue is sexy. Yes. But, but, but you get a lot of those, you said there was all the The sirens. sirens. Oh yeah. But if uh, the other day a mentor told me, he said, Hey, is this your first company? I said, no, it's my third. I said, okay, great. And I was like, why? He said, entrepreneurs, they don't know what they don't know when they're entrepreneurs for the first time. Mm-hmm. You've been there in the royal three times. Yeah. You get it. You've been knocked down a couple of times. You've been knocked down. You get it. Yeah. Whenever you see an entrepreneur for the first time, they <laughs> say, oh, growth, growth, growth. No, wait. Yeah. So that's wrong. So one of the other things uh, I wanted to ask you about was the, the development of a business leader. So Ren and I were doing our, our sales leadership training, yep. right? And it's not quite the same. There's a lot of overlap, but you know, you have the the journey from entrepreneur to CEO. And I know yep. we talked a little bit about the stages, but can you elaborate on the journey from entrepreneur to okay. CEO? So in the first stage, you're entrepreneur, and I have these archetypes that I uh, assign. So you're a warrior. Mm-hmm. You're in front of your team, and you're fighting every fight. Mm-hmm. Stage two, you have to be a leader. You have to step one step back and start working on your business. You have to be very selective. Hey, I'm going to be here, and you start seeing the animals, and just shoot to the mm-hmm. ones that are the good ones, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to be a little bit more selective and step back and start leading your team to be a leader. Then stage three, you have to become a leader of leaders. It's not about your growth. It's about the growth of your leaders. Mm-hmm. The more they grow, the more they're going to grow your company. So I usually, I tell an entrepreneur, you have to change your hat. Instead of your employees working for you, you work for them. So I tell my head of operations and my CFO, and I said, what do you need? How can I help you be better? Mm-hmm. What tools you need to do your job? I'm here to help you. I'm working for you. Indeed, what I do is I turn the orchard around mm-hmm. and I put the C on the bottom. And I said, you're here to support your managers and your leaders, and they are here to support the frontline employees. Mm-hmm. The ones that are making you money are the guys up there. Yeah. Your managers, they're an excuse to help you manage the guys on top, right? Mm-hmm. So when I turn around the orchard, they kind of see it and they realize that their job is completely different. Mm-hmm. The entrepreneurs are, are able to get to stage three and understand that way easier scale mm-hmm. because they, they understand that the, the relationship is different, the objective is different. Um, and I tell them they have to stop playing chess and play, sorry, stop playing checkers and mm-hmm. play chess. Yeah. So if you see a checkers board, 
all the chips are exactly the same, black or white, but they have the same capabilities. And you move them around. That's until stage two. Mm-hmm. When you get to stage three, you look at your board and you're playing chess and said, wow, every team member is different. They have strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And you cannot manage them all. Your job is to put them on the right position for them to use their strengths mm-hmm. and you cover the weakness with someone else. And then you step aside and you allow them to play and allow them to run your company. So that's the evolution. Being a warrior to being a hunter to being a farmer and be more strategical the way you position. And the farmer said, hey, when's the right day to plow the land? When's the right day to put the water on the... But they're very strategic yeah. in the way they do things. And we help CEOs understanding the role and taking the right decisions at that stage. And then on the fourth one, I say that the CEO becomes a satellite around the organization. Your organization runs day-to-day without you, mm-hmm. uh, above, let's say, 200 employees. But the problem is that you create an immune system in your company. For the company not to go under, it creates its own immune system. Mm-hmm. But that immune system doesn't allow you or doesn't allow the company to evolve and learn. Your job is to be kind of the disruptor, the guy that is bringing innovation, bringing ideas to try to get your team to move. Mm-hmm. And that's the right process of evolution of the disruptor. Yeah. So you have to be a warrior, um, a hunter, um, um, a farmer, they're not a disruptor. Yeah. And the Einstein used to say, if your level of knowledge is here, you're going to create a problem at this level. You cannot fix it at the same level of knowledge okay. you created. You have to evolve your level. Same happens with your company. You will not be able to be leading at level two and having a company at level three. No. Never going to happen. Right. So you have to first go to level three yourself as leader, mm-hmm. and that's going to pull your company to level three. And then you have to go to level four to pull your company to level four. Yeah. So I really enjoyed you talking about uh, flipping the org chart because I actually had to have this conversation with an organization, <laughs> um, I want to say two, three months ago. Yeah. They're like, who is who? Who is the boss? Who is this? Who is that? I was like, you're seeing this all wrong. <laughs> right. None of us are the bosses, <laughs> right? We're You flip this upside down. That's correct. And you're serving everyone else that's above you, right? Because again, exactly right. right? Because they're the ones that are, not only making us money, but they see the problems. They have to see it. They have to process it. And, and you know, if we're doing everything right, they're reporting it to us. Mm-hmm. The greatest challenge we've experienced as an organization my entire career, but, um, you know, I feel like it's gotten better in the last maybe six to nine months is we're finally getting reporting from the front lines of, like, here are the problems that we can start working on. Because until re- very recently, you know, there was a, there was a blockage in, in messaging, right? They've got problems, they're frustrated, but I don't know about it. And if I don't know about it, we can't fix it. So when I go to companies and they ask me to help them implement scaling up, mm-hmm. I tell them, if you don't give me at least a year contract, I cannot implement. Mm-hmm. And they say, but it's going to take you a year. And I was like, no, in the first three months, you're going to have most of it implemented. But there's two problems. Half of the data is wrong because mm-hmm. your team members have no idea what data they need to report and how to get the data. But second, they have no idea how to read it and take decisions Mm -hmm. based on the data. It takes me three quarters to four quarters to help get the right data because I challenge them on the data Mm -hmm. and we read the data all the time and helping them understand how they have to react when the data changes. So the other day I took a class of KPIs at Dell. You know the factory, the, the computer factory. Yep. And one person asked, hey, 
what KPI should I measure? And the faculty, the professor said something very interesting. He said, just measure what if the number changes, you're going to act different. If the number changes and you don't do anything, don't measure it. <laughs> if, if the number goes to red or yellow and you don't do anything, you have a problem, right? Yeah. So we have to train our team to learn how to act mm-hmm. based on data. And that takes a year at yeah. least for them to get it. Well, we're still, we're still figuring that one out. Yeah. But I, but I love that. I love that, right? If the number changes, you don't do anything, it's not an important metric. It's not an important metric. Or it's, the person has no idea what they're doing. That <laughs> <laughs> it has helped a lot. It has happened a lot of times. Yeah. But it's, it's such profound wisdom. It's such a simple statement. Um, and then we're talking about trends, right? And then, you know, uh, we are, we're having a conversation uh, right before this, me, you, and Ren Bartlett. And we were talking about, you know, like when's the right time to take advantage of this? And I, I make the argument that now is not the time to take advantage of it. Now is the time to make sure we don't have a game over situation. Um, you're, and I was thinking maybe 2023. Yeah. What are you seeing as trends and opportunities for, 20, for business leaders in 2023? So um, I, had, uh, I, I had dinner with Jason Matley uh, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Frank Cava had his opening of his new office. Yeah, I Jason saw that. Flew. Okay, we were there. Yeah. We had a lot of fun. And we're talking about this with Jason. And Jason said, making money is about being good. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be intelligent to make money. Keeping the money is all about discipline. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different skill set. Completely different skill set. I think 2023 is going to be about discipline. Mm-hmm. The most disciplined entrepreneurs, they will have the discipline of wait until the market signals that it's on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um if you see the last couple of crises, real estate went down. It took two years to two and a half years from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So when was the top of real estate? Six months ago? Um, yeah, I would, say, March. I would say June. We started having problems in March. In March. But June was like someone flipped a switch in the room. Right. So imagine March. Mm-hmm. Two years from March 2022. That gets you to March 2024. Yeah. I still, I believe we're going to have some downturn in 2023, and then we're going to have this cut bounce of the market a mm-hmm. little bit, but they're mm-hmm. going to continue going down. That's when the suckers go in, the ones that mm-hmm. don't understand the market. Yeah. The disciplined investors, they study the trends, they mm-hmm. study history, and they're going to be waiting, as an example. Uh, Bitcoin go to 17,000, mm-hmm. right? I have a lot of friends that jump in at 17,000, and today's at 2021, and they're... They look like heroes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's going to go down to below 10. And people said, you're crazy. Like, if it goes below 10, the world's going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to start buying if it's not at least at 12. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of friends that have attacked me. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to buy at that price. We'll talk later. Mm-hmm. I know Bitcoin's going to go below 10,000. Yeah. The ones that get excited at 17 and they get they buy the house, mm-hmm. when it gets to 12 or 10, they're going to lose the shirt. Yeah. That's discipline. And I think one of the other things too, we're talking about discipline, and this might sound you know kind of crazy, but the people that are all in on these bets. Yeah. The, like I said, I've, I've, ever, I've always had very high risk tolerance, but I've never taken a bet that I can't afford to lose. Love it. Right? We, we said this, Warren Buffett. Yeah, right. <laughs> First exactly. rule of Warren Buffett, never lose money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've lost a lot of money. I've lost a lot of money, but it's money I've lost where like if I lose it, it is what it is, yeah. right? 
And so, but I've seen so many people. You're disciplined on the bets that yeah. you make. I like to think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else thinks I'm crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, you see these guys that go all in, you know, you, uh, like Wall Street bets, mm-hmm. right? Or, uh, you know, the we call them moon boys, right? In yep. the crypto world. Yep. It's all in. And man, like they're in their entire emotional lively lives is, is surrounded only on one metric. I guess that one KPI, right? <laughs> if, it, if it's if it's green or red. So Don't do it. Uh, as an example, when I build my company, I was very successful as coaching. And I said, I'm going to keep my coaching on the side because my business is going to have ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But my coaching is super stable. It's super profitable. So today I have two companies. I have Growth Institute. Mm-hmm. We've been four years in the 5000 We're doing great. I know we're going to have tough times. In yeah. COVID, we had a couple of tough moments at the beginning of oh, COVID. Oh, for sure. My, my consulting business, super stable. I've yeah. had clients for 10 years. They said, Daniel, you're like my lucky charm or my insurance. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're never going to be of my payroll. Like, for you yeah. to be of my payroll, I'm going to have to go under and close with my company yeah. because you help me make better decisions that helps you that. Very stable, very profitable, very high cash. Yeah. So when things get bad, I'm okay. Yeah. I, I don't lose a shirt. I don't get, like, I get nervous, but I don't make dumb mistakes or I don't make dumb decisions because I know I have this. Plus, I have like three years saving the bank account. So if I don't need to get a dime for three years, nothing happens. Yeah. That's a difference. If someone has a month of money and they're having trouble, they're going to make a lot of dumb mistakes. Well, they're going to either do deals or transactions that they didn't really want to do. Um, or they're going to um, be hasty in their decision-making. Making money is about keeping one's own discipline. Yeah. That's all about. So what does your your life look today, your business and your life look today versus, um, I guess I would say, you know, when you had to leave the, the banking Business, uh, not the mortgage one, but the the yeah the, the first one, the, the first one, yeah the the fintech. Mm-hmm. So um, I left uh, really really happy because I I was like twenty eight, had some money in the bank, no kids, I did a travel and all that, but I felt that, and this is why I built Growth Institute, I felt that I needed to do one more complete cycle. Mm-hmm. The big growth of that company was me already. I was not the owner of the company. I was not the CEO. I was the head of Mexico. I was I was called a CEO, but I was CEO of Mexico and Central America. But I was not the main guy taking decisions. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I wanted to prove if I was right, if I was a good CEO, if I could go for the full term, build a company, scale it, and then sell it. And the, the mortgage bank, it did not went like that. So I said I need to do another one. Mm-hmm. That's what Growth Institute is for me. Yeah. Um, it's not about the money Growth Institute. It's about, I believe the right cycle of entrepreneur is building a company, scale it, and then sell it. Indeed, when I went to Babson, I took a class of uh, markets and all that. And the professor called it, the moment when you sell your company, called it the harvest. That's when you harvest mm-hmm. all your work. Yes, you get distributions often. But when you sell it, that's when you get like kind of the big check and, and, and it's, it's a big moment. Sell into the sunset. Sorry? Sell into the sunset. Yes. Yeah. So I, 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 when I left, I told my wife, I'm happy at this age that I have this, 
but I need to do another one that it's a full cycle. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing now today grotis. Yeah. It's addicting. It's addicting. <laughs> oh, it is addicting. Yeah. So when I told my wife I want to do another one, you're like, oh, here you come again. Mm-hmm. Because being consultant, it's like you're there in the strategy, the fun moments, you get paid, and then mm-hmm. you're not worried about the execution, the bad moments. You're mm-hmm. like, it's, 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 it's a business with very little stress, with very high revenue and, and stability of cash. Yeah. And when I said, well, I'm going to do my next one, my wife was like, oh, here you go again. And I was like, but you know I need it. And she said, I understand. Yeah. Let's just put some rules so the, com- the family will not get into trouble mm-hmm. and you could do whatever you want. We yeah. put the rules. I've been following my rules. We're a happy family. Yeah, we're, we're still working to the point where I can have those hard rules. <laughs> we're not at that point yet. We've got the number where we can set the, the hard rules. We're on our way. I know my wife would be a lot happier when we get there, but we're not there yet today. Uh, what, it's good that you're having the conversations and you know where's, what your numbers are. Yeah. A lot of entrepreneurs, they, they, they don't see their numbers and yeah. they make a lot of mistakes. Uh, what is your why? So my wife, my why is to help a million entrepreneurs obtain freedom. And what gives you freedom is do what you do bigger because you're going to feel good with yourself yeah. and then have less drama. That's why in, my log, in the logo of Growth Institute, Below Growth Institute name, it says scale impact, reduce drama. Yeah. Those are the two things that give you freedom as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, it's so underrated, the part about <laughs> reducing drama. Because there's a lot of things, because we all get into it and we think it's going to be uh, like when I first became a realtor, right? I thought for sure, like people need to buy houses, right? Yeah. And with my database, like everyone's well off, like for sure, I can do really well. I only need to sell one house a month and I'm living a pretty good life, yep. right? And then I'm going to have, you know, go to the beaches and drink the Mai Tais. And travel the world. Travel the world, right? You have, you have full control of your time. Could not be further from the truth, right? Being an entrepreneur, A, generally means that you don't get to choose your time, right? You get to, use, you get to work more hours. I have more bosses. More bosses, right? More people that rely on you and you're obligated to more people. And then B, I don't know about other entrepreneurs, but for, I found for myself, I don't really want to travel. I My fun is the business. So anyway, there are a lot of promises so, made. Quick that, story. I coach an entrepreneur that has like 8,000 employees today in Mexico. Wow. I, I, I coach another one that has 25,000, but I coach one that has 8,000. And he one day called me in, in pretty depressed. And I said, what happened? He said, I just came from my Christmas party from the office. And I was like, what? That sounds you? wonderful. Said, yeah. <laughs> and the guy said, a month before the party, they told me, hey, we should include spouses or just employees. And the guy said, we have a lot of employees, just the employee without the spouses. And the event came came in. I didn't even see this, the, the place or anything. I was running the business and my team was building the party and putting it all together. I entered the room and it was like a big wedding and a lot of tables and a lot of people. And I looked at my team and said, I told you not to bring spouses. They're all employees. He has never seen all his employees together, 1,200. <laughs> he looks at the room and it's like, oh, my God. All of them depend on me taking the right decisions, mm-hmm. doing the right thing. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And he was, he was freaking out. So he has 8,000. When he had like 7,000, he got an offer to sell his company. And he was in the hundreds of millions. Mm-hmm. And the guy didn't sold it. And I was like, why? Like, you were free. And the guy said, I have enough already in the bank that I'm free. Mm-hmm. But 
what it was bad for me is the company buying it was not going to treat my employees yeah. the way I treat them. So I came to my team and said, guys, I have two options. Or I sell it, I don't want to run it anymore, or you run it without me, mm-hmm. and you keep the quality that you guys have. And the team said, don't worry, we'll run it for you. Mm-hmm. And now the team runs it. And that's awesome. That's awesome. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Hey, just last story. I think this is really important. Sorry. Sure. Yes. Oh, you're right. The other day I saw the story of an entrepreneur that went public. And you know, you want to go public between $12 to $15. That's a typical valuation for a tech company. He goes public, and that day the stock goes to $80 and close at $80. And of course, all the all employees had stock options. Mm-hmm. And they go crazy and they go to nightclubs or whatever in New York. And where's the owner? Where's the owner? And the owner was nowhere to be found. So they called the guy and said, where are you? And the guy said, I'm in the office. I'm working. The day he went public at $80, he went back to the office to work. Mm-hmm. So the team goes to the office and said, you're crazy. You're worth billions of dollars. Let's go and have fun. And the guy's like, no, I need to redo the strategy of the company. And they were like, you're crazy. And the guy said, we went public at 12. I thought it was going to close around 20. And my business plan and projections are for a company that is worth $20 a stock. Mm-hmm. At $80 a stock, I don't have a business plan for an $80 stock. Mm-hmm. I'm redoing the business plan of the company. Yeah, That's an entrepreneur that gets it. Yeah, like He knew that being public has its duties as obligations, a CEO, obligations. Scrutiny. And he said, if the company is worth $80, I need to give a return of a valuation of $80. I don't have the business plan. Mm-hmm. So he went back to the drawing board and redid the strategy. Yeah, I think I read That's this. Crazy. I think I read that same thing. It was um, I was reading it. It wasn't an article. It was a different book. It was uh, the hard things about hard things. Great book. Yeah. Oh, amazing and, uh, book. And I was reading that, and yeah, I, I'm definitely not that. I would have been celebrating with eighty dollars. <laughs> By the way, talk about drama. Remembering the story, one day he's raising money. The company's about to go under. He that guy's got money. more drama than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about drama, right? Yeah. But quick story, guys. This is He's raising money because if not, the company was going to go under. Mm-hmm. And one day he gets a phone call when he's with a banker. And the phone, it was his father-in-law. He said, my father-in-law never calls me. Yeah. So he sees the father-in-law and said, I think I need to get this call. So he gets out of the meeting, gets on the call and said, how can I help? And the father-in-law said, hey, I know you have a lot of pressure and you're raising money and all that. Just want to let you know your wife had an accident and she was pronounced dead for a couple of minutes. But she's back alive. She's okay. She wants to let you know. I hangs off the phone. And the guy goes back into the meeting. And I'm like, what the hell? So he goes into the meeting. Mm-hmm. And he's like realizing his wife was dead for a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Comes back out of the meeting and calls the wife and said, how are you? And the wife said, like, I'm fine. Don't worry. I'm here. My father came, whatever. Go on, do your stuff. And the guy's like, no, I need to go to see you. And the wife said, I'm in the hospital. I'm, I'm okay. Continue doing your stuff. And the guy continued to raise money. Yeah. Imagine that your wife was dead for a minute. Mm-hmm. The guy didn't take time to go back home to give a hug to his wife. Yeah. That's drama. That's drama. It's the life, we, it's the life we sign up for in certain capacities. Yeah. Right? I mean, you talk about obligations. Talk about you obligations. Got, Employees. How many people depend on you? Yeah. How many people here, they're expecting a check from you to... Yeah. With their kids. Yeah, no, that's 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 the that's the drama. That's I live for it, but it's not without its uh yeah. 
It's, but it's people cost. usually see the, the fun part or the glamour part to be an entrepreneur. Oh, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm an yeah. owner and I have 100 employees. Yeah. Talk about the other side of yeah. the coin. Yeah, the, the sleepless nights, the, uh, the, the wife yeah. that is, is stressed. The kids that you're not there for their parties and all these things. Yeah. What is your biggest struggle right now? What is my biggest struggle? Um, I need to reinvent myself in several ways. Um, I build a business uh, that has carried me today, but how another mentor says, what got you here won't get you there. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in for a reinvention. Um, I, I know how to make money and I know how to keep my clients happy. But I already pass a number of clients and limit that I'm overextended. I need to figure out how to continue giving value and provide even more value, but with less time for me. Mm -hmm. Today is not about drama for me. It's about time. Like I start coaching calls at 7 a.m. So I wake up at 5 every day and do my morning routine 5 to 7. Probably once a week, I wake up at 5 and there's a text from one of my clients saying, I couldn't sleep. I'm having this issue. I need you to call me now. And I was like, at 5, I want to wake up, have my cup of coffee, like <laughs> be nice, right? Mm -hmm. Having to call a client at 5 a.m. because they're having some drama. I wish I don't have to do that mm -hmm. so those are the kind of things that i want to change yeah. yeah it's stable it's not about the money it's about changing it so i could enjoy my life more i mean the best person i would refer to to answer that question would be you <laughs> so yeah. how would you counsel yourself <laughs> through that you know what it's very easy to do it with someone else it's very difficult to do it with you <laughs> yeah so indeed i had a call with my coaches uh every wednesday i have five coaches that work with me to all the clients that i cannot serve or whatever mm -hmm. i send them to all the coaches and um, I had a call with them and said, guys, I need to reinvent this business model. Mm -hmm. It's great. We all feed our families and we're happy. But it's, it's getting to be too much. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been growing a lot. And now the time commitment and the stress of the time is too much. Yeah. So I challenged them and said, how can we? Indeed, I, I just hired a coach. You know, Ari may sell, uh, mm -hmm. doing less. Yeah, doing less. So I just hired Ari. Yeah. Um, indeed, yesterday night, I sent Ari. Uh, video, I went into Loom and said in my calendar, and I show him every week of my calendar between now and the end of the year. And then I show him, I have a spreadsheet with all my revenue and all that, and send it to him and said, hey, here's why I need your coaching. This is the amount of hours it's going to take me. This is the amount of work that I do. This is revenue. I need to reinvent my business. Mm -hmm. And I sent to him yesterday night. Uh, and that's that's what Ari's good at. That is what he's good at. Yeah. It was a great book, right? Was it Live More by Doing Less? Yeah. Yeah, an incredible book. And by the way, Ari, it's brilliant yeah. to run his life. I interviewed him for a podcast like a month ago. And he told me the podcast, I have a seven-figure consulting business. Mm -hmm. He's a paramedic in two hospitals. He's a, a firefighter. Uh, that's what he loves. He said, my only appointment in the day is your podcast. Mm -hmm. everything else is on structure of the day. I was like, I have like 12 calls a day, yeah. <laughs> like a month before. Today, if a client asks for a call, my assistant gives them a call at the end of November. Mm -hmm. And people call me and say, like, Daniel, I'm paying you to be my coach. Like, I need a problem now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm so busy that I don't cannot get their calls. Yeah, I, I have my space, on, but I have my routines and I have my spaces that my assistant could not put calls. And she needs to have special permission to block certain days. So I have to put those times and get my clients in. It's not the right thing. 
I need to. Yeah. Well, my biggest struggle right now uh, is is I'm actually booking things on Sundays, right? Like there's no more times, right, in the weekday. So I'm booking things on a Sunday. So like every time I do it, there's a little bit of guilt. It's like, well. Yeah, but I have a commitment. I have to do it. Yeah. So by the way, I try to keep Saturdays completely off. Saturdays are completely open. Yeah. So my, my... my, my son plays soccer Saturday. Mm-hmm. That's my number one obligation on Saturday. And usually by Friday, I'm pretty tired. So I leave Saturdays 100% off. Mm-hmm. Sunday, I sometimes do a lot of planning or thinking before the week. Yeah, I try not to have calls or anything, but I, I still have pending emails or a presentation or something that yeah. I have to do on Sunday. Oh, yeah. Definitely preparing presentations. That's definitely on Sundays. Yes. Sunday night for me. <laughs> yeah. I usually around 6 or 7 p.m. going to my office or my, my home office. And I clean and I plan my week between 7 and 10 p.m. on Sundays. Yeah. Not the right thing. Uh, what is your superpower? Oof. I think be able to see a lot of data and kind of put it together. Um, yeah. Well, that goes back to the trends the starting trends. the bank. I, th- I think that's my, my super. Um, I have a, a couple of groups, masterminds that I lead. I've been talking about this thing with China for almost two years. And people were like, you're crazy. I'm like, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And now it's happening. And they send me all these articles and said, mm-hmm. you told me this two years ago. And I was like, yeah, but I saw it two years ago. But I've read so much that mm-hmm. that's what gives me. So that's kind of my superpower. Yeah. What's disappointing for me is like I'm, re- I'm reading these articles. Yep. But I'm reading these articles in places that are not commonly read sites. <sighs> that's what's frustrating for me. So... Today, the U.S. is very divided, mm-hmm. and the media is just one-sided. Mm-hmm. 95% of the media in the U.S. is one-sided. Mm-hmm. I rarely go to a media site. I get a lot of my news in in YouTube, mm-hmm. like podcasts. Like I read, I hear a lot of podcasts and, and, and YouTube videos of the people I respect mm-hmm. and admire. Like I don't know if you read uh, this guy, Neil Strauss, uh, The Four Turning. Mm-hmm. That guy is brilliant. And yeah. he sees a lot of data and, and looks into trends. I love him. Um, Joe Rogan. I hear a lot of Joe Rogan. Um, uh, the Kitco guys to talk about metals. I think metals are going to grow yeah. fast. They interview really good people yeah. uh, in Kitco. So that's that's where I get my news. That's where I get yeah. my trends. But isn't it unfortunate? Like, you have to go in the most obscure places yeah. to get what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't go to the to the crazy ones. Like, yeah. like uh, the what's the name of the guy? I just got a billion dollars. Uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Le- he was sued because he was attacking the parents of the Parkland kids or something. Oh, Alex Jones. Alex Jones. I don't go to that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I see a lot of people. They they try to get out of the mm. CNNs and they go to Alex Jones. That's a problem. Well, I would argue the problem is not Alex Jones. The problem is that the CNN is forcing people to go to the Alex to Jones. go to Alex Jones. Yeah. Um, so, final question is: What book have you gifted more than any other? Oh, scaling up, but I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from scaling up, um, the hard things about hard things I've recommended a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, leadership and self deception. It's a yep. great book, and I've given. I read that very early in my career. I should probably read it again. I've read it like eight times. Every yeah. time I get in trouble with someone I love. Mm-hmm. I reread the book to think about the person and kind of help me get out of the box against yeah. the person. And I've read like eight times. Um, and last, going back to Jim Collins, I think the best book of Jim Collins is Great by Choice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
two main chapters, Return on Luck, that mm-hmm. you and I discussed it, and the 20 Mile March. Yeah. I think the best entrepreneurs in the world, they know their 20 Mile March, and they do it for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And they're ex- exceptionally successful. Yeah. But they don't get distracted. They don't get distracted in the good time, the good times, and they don't get distracted in the bad times. Yeah. See, I got I got the problem with the distraction. You know what's really cool as we're talking about this, you know, we're talking about leaders and leading leaders, right? Yep. And I've got the great benefit. I've got multiple great leaders here. I read that book uh, just a couple of months ago because one of the leaders here said, we need to read this book, <laughs> right? Because I've read on yeah. Facebook, people are like, I love this book. This and that. Like, you, you, you get the recommendations. But one, one of the leaders in our organization says, hey, we need to read this book. So Back we did. to basics. Yeah. By the way, something interesting, when COVID happened, our business went on when when had significant problems in March, and then April we had our best month in history. Yeah. Um, but Vernon and I were talking one day until like two o'clock in the morning, and we were trying to decide what to do with the business and kind of get our heads around COVID and lockdowns and everything. And Vern said something that I thought he was brilliant. He said, "Daniel, when we when we're gonna shut the call, we're gonna end the call." He said, first we have to go back to basics. You have to go back to your rhythm of meetings, your KPIs, like." Make sure you don't lose that. Mm-hmm. And second, you have to increase your talk time with other entrepreneurs. He said, you're not going to get out of this thinking. You're going to get out of this talking. Yeah. So figure out who are your peers, people that you admire, mentors and all that, right. and multiply your talk time with them so you could really get a sense of what's happening, mm-hmm. get the best ideas, the best uh, information, and then be able to take decisions. Yeah. So I'm doing that now. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm here at Genius Network. Well, and that's the reason why I get so much value out of Collective Genius. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> right? All right. So uh, just I'm going to make a couple of quick announcements. I want you guys, uh, I want you to think about the, leave the listen, uh, listeners with a last thought. So uh, guys, we do have our upcoming sales training event in my office, Disruptors Blueprint. So go to uh, disruptors.com slash, I think it's sales training. We have our live event. Come check it out. We're going to spend a day and a half in my office going over our exact sales process how we're getting people not only to be able to buy houses deeper, but get more of those contracts to close because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to get a signed contract. It only matters when we close escrow. So if you're having problems getting signed contracts or getting them to close, be sure to attend our live event. So getting the contract like first base. Yes, first base. It doesn't count until you go back to (laughs) home. Yeah, you got to get to home plate. How to get a home plate. So what are some last thoughts you want to leave everybody with? So um, what I ask is that you think about your company as a product. The best entrepreneurs understand that the product on the clients are secondary for them to build a great company. If you build a great company, you're going to be able to provide great value and make a lot of money. If you disregard the company, it doesn't happen. So, So think about your company as a product. And what creates a product is the team that you have in your company. Mm-hmm. I tell people, you cannot build a great company. You have to build a great team. And that team is going to build a great company. Yeah, We're getting into a complicated market, however you want to call it. The teams that will double down with their teams and how to make them be better, how to grow your team, how to help them operate as team. You're going to talk to them a lot. Those are the ones that are going to come out strong. Yeah. Um, so concentrate in making the company a better company. And if the company is a better company and the team is a better team, like there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Like in an economy of ninety trillion dollars, 
if you could not make money, you have a problem. <laughs> yeah. If someone wants to get a hold of you or connect with you, how would they do that? Um, uh, growthinstitute.com. That's mm-hmm. my main business. Uh, and then my personal page is danielmarcos.co. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an example, I talk about stages and all that. If you go to my danielmarcos.co, there's a banner for you to download some slides and, and okay. see this trend, the trend, the stages and all that. Awesome. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. pleasure. Thank you very much. You're very Appreciate welcome. It. Thank you guys all for watching. Thank you. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors.